Good morning. It's good to be, to be with you today. It's good to be together. I want to thank you for all the encouragement that you gave uh, my son David this past week. And I appreciate you know, your support of that meeting and your attention and your study in God's Word with us. And thank you for being you know, supported in that. You know, I think we've all been challenged more to look at ourselves as the people of God, uh, as members of the one body of the saved of Christ, but also as members of a local community working together for the cause of Christ. And so may we think on the words and the study that we've had this past week, and may we build on that as we move forward. We'll open your Bibles to 1 Samuel. We're going to focus a bit there as we look at a, a particular character. As you do that, uh, I want to begin by saying this. You know, plans do not always work out the way we plan. And that goes for everybody. Not just for the few, but for everybody. Now, you and I know that God tells us that tomorrow is no guarantee. And we're also told that we do not know what tomorrow is going to bring. Now, so God tells us this. He forewarns us this. But still, you know, we are surprised by the turn of events when they are not exactly what we planned. And so we are reminded, for example, in Ephesians, you know, that uh, children of God, Christians, are to walk circumspectly. That is, we are to walk wisely, carefully. And that involves us you know, thinking uh, how we should use wisdom to direct our steps. How we need to use wisdom to make our choices. We need to use wisdom when thinking about what activities we engage ourselves in. And the reason why is because we live at a time where the days of our lives are lived in troublesome times. The days of our lives are lived in an evil world that is darkened by sin. And we may go about establishing ourselves order. We try to make, you know, arrange our lives in such a way that we use wisdom to guide our own choices, to, to, to create an environment that is a refuge of goodness. But sooner or later, we are made aware that we are not in control as much as we think we are. So, how do we handle it? When that happens, how do we handle ourselves when God's plans are not exactly in line with what we planned? How does that work out for you? When life suddenly takes a turn, or maybe you're made aware of something and it's not exactly as you had planned, and now you've got to make a decision how you are going to handle that. Or when our thoughts do not perfectly line up with God's will or God's mind, what he has in mind for us. And we are made aware that my thoughts haven't been in line with God. How do I handle that? Ideally, 
We tell ourselves, we all tell ourselves, well, we're ready for that. That, you know, we are willing to accept God's plans because we know when we believe that God's plans are good for us. And we know when we believe that, you know, God's plans are what's best for us. And so ideally, we tell ourselves that. But then one day we wake up and there is an unexpected hurdle that we have to get over. We wake up and there is this unforeseen change, of course. And we've got to figure out how to get through that. Or maybe we, we learn about a God-ordained plan which we simply must accept humbly to be from God and follow that plan. King Saul's son, Jonathan, was such a man. He was a godly man who humbly accepted God's plan. He had to learn to accept God's plan when perhaps from his birth, there should have been a different plan. Because he had to accept God's plan for the throne and for the nation. Very quickly, let's look at Jonathan the man. Well, we've already touched on the idea that Jonathan was the son of Saul. And actually, he was the son of five, you know, a son of five children. There were three boys and three, two girls. Saul, Saul had five kids, and Jonathan is just one of them. But we learn about how Jonathan was a valiant warrior, too. In 1 Samuel chapter 14, we have an occasion where he calls his armor bearer to himself. There in the 14th chapter, verse 6, and it says to the young man, Come, let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. In the days of King Saul... The country, uh, the Philistines, the Philistines were a constant, constant thorn in the, foot, in the flesh. They're a constant bother to Israel. And so here's Jonathan, calls his armor bearer to him and says, Hey, let's go across there to that garrison. And he says, Perhaps the Lord will work for us. Perhaps the Lord will work for us. For the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. Here is Jonathan who, who understood that God is not limited by numbers. He is not confined into this, in the same framework of time that you and I are confined to. John, Jonathan knew that. And he trusted in the Lord to deliver him. And so you drop down there and you look there in verse 12. So... The men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us and we'll tell you something. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come, come after me, for the Lord has given them into the hands of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet with his armor bearer behind him, and they fell before Jonathan. And his armor bearer put some, of, some to death after him. That slaughter which John and the number had made was about 20 men within about a half a furrow and an acre of land. 
And there's a trembling in the camp, in the field, and among the people. Even the garrison and the raiders trembled, and the earth quaked, so that it became a great trembling. Jonathan was, was not just a son of King Saul. Jonathan was this valiant warrior in the army of Israel who trusted God and knew God could deliver. He was also a caring commander who you drop down in, in the same chapter, look there in verse 29 and 30, who wisely saw that it was foolish for his father, King Saul, to deprive soldiers needed nourishment to keep up their strength during the battle. And so Jonathan says to them, My father has troubled the land. See now how my eyes have brightened because I tasted a little of this honey. How much more if only the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies, which they found. For now the slaughter among the Philistines has not been great. He is a commander here who, who cared for a soldier and realized that his father had made a bad decision. And it hurt his men. And their victory that should have already occurred hadn't happened yet. But also, as we continue to think briefly about the man Jonathan, he is a true friend of David. As you read there in chapter 18, when you have the, the, the covenant that's made between Jonathan and David, and how they become these lifelong friends, to the point that Jonathan became both the defender and the protector of David. In chapter 20, 1 Samuel chapter 20, a number of different exchanges that goes on through this account in 1 Samuel. But in chapter 20, look down there in verse 12 and 13. And what, what Jonathan says to David about his, his goal, his ambition, his word to watch out for David. He says to him, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if there is good feeling towards David, shall I not then send to you and make it known to you? If it please my father to do you harm, may the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also. If I do not make it known to you and send you away, that you may go in safety and may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. Here is Jonathan during these difficult years in the latter years of his father's life and during his reign. Jonathan was willing to risk his own life to save David's. That's the man, Jonathan. But what about the, the displaced heir to the throne? We are told back in chapter 13... That God would have established Saul's kingdom. But because of his foolish sin, because of Saul's sin, a son of Saul would never, would never reign as king over Israel. In chapter 13, there in verse 13 and 14, Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. 
You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would establish your kingdom over Israel forever. Saul could have had sons reigning on the throne. But no, he acted foolishly and did not keep God's command. He goes on to say to him, Now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. That's David. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Jonathan would never be king because of his father's sins. That opportunity was taken out from under him. But what's Jonathan's attitude? How does Jonathan react to this? How does he deal with this? Well, Jonathan was a man who even refused to take the throne in an unjust way, in a wicked manner, just to secure it for himself, because that's what his dad wanted him to do. That's what King Saul wanted to King Saul wanted Jonathan to act unjustly, act wickedly toward David. But no, Jonathan wouldn't do that. And so you look over there in chapter 20. And you're reading there in verse 30. Then, the Saul's, then Saul's anger burned against Jonathan. And he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. That's pretty harsh. That's how angry Saul became. Do I not know that you are choosing the son of Jesse to your own shame and the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Therefore, now send and bring him to me, for he must surely die. Jonathan wouldn't do that. Jonathan was a man with a pure heart. He was a man who understood his place and accepted his role. And so therefore, he became a supporter of David to be the next king. Chapter 23 of 1 Samuel, beginning there in verse 16, he says, And Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David at Horus and encouraged him in God. And thus he said to him. So Jonathan says to his best friend David, Do not be afraid, because the hand of Saul, my father, will not find you. And you will be, you will be king over Israel. And I will be next to you. And Saul, my father, knows that also. So the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. And David stayed at Horesh while Jonathan went to his own house. Jonathan accepted God's plan. He put God's choice above his own possible political success. He refused to oppose God's anointed one in spite of what his father was saying. Why is that? Because here is a friendship that is rooted in their trust and in their reliance in God together. So how well do we, how well do we accept God's plans when we learn it is different from what we thought? How well do we accept God's plans when we learn that it's different from what we wanted? Or maybe different from what someone else wanted 
for us? How well do we accept God's plans and trust God and act faithfully accordingly? Well, men of faith, men of faith listen to God. Men of faith heed God's plans. And King David is an example of that. And you recall how King David was forbidden by God to build the temple as David first planned. David made plans. And God said no. And what does David do? David accepted it. He accepted his role to simply make preparations. In 1 Chronicles, if you turn over there to chapter 29... 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 2 and 3. As he is speaking to the assembly of Israel regarding his son Solomon, who will be the next king, and who will build that physical temple in Jerusalem, David says in verse 2, Now with all my ability I have provided for the house of my God the gold for the things of gold, and the silver for the things of silver, and the bronze for the things of bronze, and the iron for the things of iron, and wood for the things of wood, onyx stones, inlaid stones, stones of various colors, and all kinds of precious stones, and alabaster in abundance. And moreover, in my delight in the house of my God, the treasure I have gold and silver I give to the house of my God over and above all that I've already provided for the holy temple. And he goes on to say some more about that. And very simply what we see here, here is David who did not push to get his own way. But rather humbly submitted to God's directions and did all that he could do. In the New Testament, take the example of Peter. How Peter, an experienced fisherman who does not see the reason, does not see the logic to put his nets back down in the water again after he worked all night and caught nothing. He didn't see the logic of this at all. But because Jesus told him to do it, he did it anyway. He accepted the Lord's plans. And then you have the example of Saul. In Acts chapter 9, the great persecutor of Christians in the first century there, particularly under the the guidance and the support of, of Jews, who had these plans to travel from Jerusalem all the way up north to Damascus in Syria. And he's going there to hunt down Christians. To hunt down men and women of faith and dragged them back to Jerusalem to be put in prison. And if decided that they put to death, he'd give their hearty approval to it. That's, that was Saul's plans. But as you know, in Acts 9, those plans got halted dramatically. And what did he do? Well, when he faced the truth... When truth were presented to him, Paul changed his course and he obeyed the gospel. And so you glance at those familiar, that familiar record when, 
when Jesus speaks to him out of, the, out of the bright light and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you? He said, I am Jesus. I'm Jesus who you are persecuting. He says, get up, enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. What did, what, did, what did Saul do? He did exactly what he was told to do. And he wait, has to wait three days fasting and praying in blindness before a servant of the Lord comes to him and tells him what he must do. And in verse 18, we are told, when Ananias restores his vision to him and his, and his eyes can see again, he says he regained his sight, he got up, and he was baptized. Men of faith listen to God. Men of faith heed God's plans, even when it's something totally different from what you plan to do or what I plan to do. The Apostle Paul, you look there in Acts 16, he has begun his missionary journeys. And so he is busy proclaiming Christ from city to city and country to country. And so he's made plans to, to, to go to Asia, to preach the gospel there, but no... The, Spirit, the Holy Spirit won't let him do that. We're told they passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak to the word in Asia. He was allowed to go there. He said, okay. And so he says, we came to Mysia, and, and we were trying to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus didn't permit them there either. But when, he, but when he received that Macedonian call, as we, told, as we see here in Acts 16, verse 9, a vision of man saying, come to Macedonia and help us, he understood that God was calling him. Not to go to Asia, not to go to Bithynia, but to go to Macedonia. And what did he do? He immediately went to Macedonia to preach the gospel. Men of faith listened to God. Men of faith accept God's plan. Whether it's Jonathan, or whether it's David, or Peter, or Paul, it doesn't matter who they are. Men of faith listen and do what God says. And the reason why is because faith is all about submitting to our Creator's will. Faith is all about submitting to our Redeemer's will, accepting His plans even when it's difficult. It's not about us following or finding our own path that makes us happy. It's not about that. It's not about us finding a path that's reasonable, logical to our own thinking. It's not about that either. And nor is it about us finding a path that fits with our personal preferences, our personal decisions, our personal concerns. It's not about that. Faith is all about submitting to our Creator's will. Submitting to our Lord's will. Even when it's hard. But hesitancy in following Jesus, hesitancy in truly following his direction, following his call, is more common than what many of us would want to admit 
to ourselves. In Luke chapter 9, in Luke 9, there's an interesting scenario that unfolds where there are those who have expressed a willingness and a desire to follow Jesus, and Jesus says some pretty strange words. You know, I think so, and I think sometimes we, we, we try too hard to kind of, you know, reason through this to make it fit what I want it to mean. I think we work too hard to do that. But you look there in Luke chapter 9. As you know, there at the end of, uh, of that chapter, it talks about you know, being willing to follow Jesus. Verse 57, someone said, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, uh, talk about someone, what does Jesus say to people? How does Jesus talk to people? This is an interesting one. He says to that guy, foxes have holes and birds have, have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Talk about, what does that mean? Well, that, that brother, that servant, that disciple, whoever that is, he better stop and think about what Jesus just said. And then someone else speaks up, says, yes, very much in the same, same tones. He, 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 he says in verse 60, he says, well, excuse me, in verse 69, he says to someone, follow me. But then, so the first guy says, I want to follow you. And he said, but the son of man does have, have no place to lay his head. And he says to a second man, you follow me. And this guy speaks. I said, well, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. And so Jesus responds to that request. Allow the dead to bury their own dead. We don't like this, do we? We don't like this. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. So a third guy speaks up. I'm assuming has heard the first and the second you know, uh, dialogue. Third guy speaks up. I will follow you, Lord. But first, permit me to say goodbye to those at home. And Jesus says, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Simple cares. Simple concerns. Aren't they? You have a loved one that has, who has passed away, and the body needs to be buried. You want to say goodbye to folks at home. Just simple little things that can become great spiritual distractions. That can blindly cause us to conclude that our plans fit perfectly with God's plans. And that's just not true all the time, is it? So I wanted to look at very quickly four challenging things when it comes to God's plans for his children, for those who seek salvation. Four simple applications that have profound ramifications that our world does not like to hear. And that is God's plans for marriage. You know, God made marriage good. God made marriage honorable. And his plans do not include, it does not include sinful disregard 
to the marital covenant. That simple. It does not allow a sinful disregard of the marital covenant. And so in Matthew chapter 19, Jews come testing Jesus with questions about marriage and divorce. And Jesus then says, have you not read? You look at the scriptures, read what God has said. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, what God has joined together, let no man separate. That's God's plans. And that plan has been from the, from the dawn of creation. From the beginning when God made male and female. That's God's plan. And God does not accept divorce for just any cause. Jesus is very explicit about that in verse 9. And I say to you, whoever, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality or sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. People then and people now can't accept this statement. And that's exactly what Jesus says when disciples come back and say, hey, this, this is... This is hard to swallow. This is some tough teaching. And listen to what Jesus says. Not all men can accept this statement. Not all men can accept this statement. That's true today. When God's plans, God-ordained plans, are suddenly made known, the truth becomes apparent. There's a, there's a lot of people who don't want to accept God's plan. Let's look at another example. God has ordained women to take a submissive role in his son's kingdom. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 34, it talks about when the church comes together, about what, you know, what is done in the assembly and the proper way to conduct ourselves in the assembly. So that all can be edified, built up in our praise to God, in our you know, teaching one another. In verse 34, it says, The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves just as the law also says. So God's plan, the Lord's plan is, in the assembly, godly women are not to be addressing, speaking to the church as is discussed here in this context of these miraculous gifts. They're to take a submissive role. Over in 2nd excuse me, 1st Timothy in 2nd chapter, a very similar wording. You know, where it talks about, you know, in verse 8, how all men are to be lifting up holy hands everywhere praying to God. And then he shifts from saying some, some specific instructions to, to men, and he shifts then you know, about you know, conduct everywhere, and he says something to women. He says something about their modest apparel, but notice verse 11. 
A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Modern culture, modern trends do not change the king's ordinances. Just because we live in a modern time doesn't change the laws of the king. It doesn't change the nature of his kingdom and the expectations and the responsibilities of that kingdom. And so we see both in the assemblies of Christians, but not only there, but also in the home relationship, God has spoken on the matter. And he's laid down, he's laid down his laws about how a godly woman conducts herself. To ignore this or to change what is written is to usurp divine authority. That's rebellion. And many do not accept God's plan on the role of woman in his son's kingdom. And so when this truth becomes apparent, many walk away from the king, refusing to submit to his plan. In Luke 13, 3, Jesus says, Unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Paul preached the same thing over in Acts 17, where he says, God in times past overlooked the ignorance of man, but now commands men everywhere, commands all everywhere to repent. There is no entrance into God's heavenly kingdom without repentance. Without repentance... We cannot, no one can enter heaven. Now, repentance is not just an apology. And repentance is not just saying, I'm sorry. That, that may be a component of it, but that's not what repentance is all about. Repentance is a change of heart that produces a change of action and a change of words. A believer cannot continue to practice immoralities and impurities. He cannot continue to practice enmities and strife or angry outbursts or dissensions or covetousness or violence or or any of these things that are listed here, taken from Galatians 5 and 1 Corinthians chapter 6, any of those sins. We can't continue to practice those things and Go to heaven. We must repent. We must have a change of heart that produces a change of action in our life. Many cannot accept God's demands of holiness. Many are unwilling to give up the love of this world. The lust of the eyes, the lust the flesh and the pride of life. Many are unable to to accept this. But that's God's plan. There's no entrance into his kingdom, into heaven, without repentance. And finally, the Lord Jesus commands that baptism, baptism is necessary to be saved. 
In Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, he says, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. To be a disciple of the King, to be a disciple of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, baptism is required. And it is Peter that explains to us in his first epistle, chapter 3, verse 21, that baptism now does save us. It is not the removal of the filth from the flesh, but it is an appeal to God for good, for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, most denominations, most churches built by men today reject the essential role baptism fulfills in salvation. Most reject God's plan. But when we reject the Holy Spirit's word, then we're rejecting Jesus as Lord. And when we reject Jesus as Lord because we rejected the Spirit's word, then we are rejecting God who ordered and planned the scheme of redemption of mankind through Christ Jesus, his son. Faith is all about submitting. Submitting to our creator's will, our redeemer's will. God's plans are life. God's plans are eternal life. And so therefore, with faith, we must be willing to accept all of God's plans, even when it is not what I thought it should be. Even when it's not exactly what maybe I wanted it to be. But when we are made aware of what God's plans are, if I want to be saved, I want to be accepted into the fellowship of my Creator and my Savior, then I must submit by faith in obedience to what God has planned for us to do. Do you believe Jesus to be the Christ? Do you believe Him to be the Son of God? If you do, but you have not obeyed His gospel, why not today make that commitment by faith by submitting your will to His, confessing your faith that you believe He is the Son of God, repenting of the sins you've committed in your life, turning away from that lifestyle, and then submit your will by being buried with Him in baptism to wash away your sins. If you're ready to make that decision, that commitment today, we're ready to help help you with that. If you are a Christian, but you've strayed, and perhaps you have resisted God's plans in some aspect in your walk in this world. You need to repent. You need to come back to the Lord. You need to make that right in faith, repentance, and prayer. And if we can assist you any way to do that, we encourage you. Please come now while we stand and sing the song.